You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast on kids and technology. I'm Dr. John DeYard at LifeSpa.com, where we tend to prove ancient wisdom with modern science. But in today's podcast, there's not a lot of ancient wisdom here to explain technology. Um, Before I get started, I have a a little housekeeping to do. Uh, One, if you're registered for the live event, you'll receive an email tomorrow with a link to watch or listen or download this podcast. Um, You can sign up for any of my podcasts there at lifespot.com under the Learn tab by clicking Podcast under the Events column. I hope that makes sense. Check for my upcoming podcast. We have some really cool ones coming up um, in September, uh, an Ayurvedic approach to autoimmune conditions, which I think will be really interesting, a lot of interesting science. And also uh, a heads up is that we are, uh, re- we are releasing uh, my free four part video training series called The Critical Strategies to Detox Your Body. Um, and if you missed it the last time we actually launched this about a year or so ago, um, this training will start at the end of the month. Registration opens tomorrow, August 15th. And so if you missed it last time, be sure to sign up this time. It's really an awesome training. We just get all the information you need to learn how to detoxify yourself, why and how they get toxic in the first place. And um, uh, people who saw it last time loved it. And it's one of those things where a lot of folks just want to watch it again. We've got lots of requests for folks to, 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 us to put it out again so they can actually get to see it again. So don't miss that. Sign up for that starts tomorrow, August 15th. Okay. All right. So welcome to the podcast on kids and technology. You know, I want to say off the top that I'm not... This is not my area of expertise. Here at LifeSpot.com, we're about proving ancient wisdom with modern science. And there's nothing ancient about technology. And it's important for me to say that I'm not talking to you all as an expert, but I'm sort of more talking to you as a father of six children who, who range from 14 to 29 years old. And I've watched them all go through this whole technological wave, or social media wave. Maybe it's not a wave. Maybe it's permanent. Uh, but I watched all that, and I thought that was sort of interesting. And I have so many patients that come in asking me questions after questions about how to deal with their kids. I did write a book called Perfect Health for Kids. So I have lots of patients who have kids who are dealing with this problem. And I feel like that what I want to do in this podcast is just kind of lay out a lot of the research, um, some of the things that I do at home to keep our home sane, um, and also ask for an open dialogue about this and try to just bring more awareness to this issue. It's a human experiment unlike any other one we've ever seen. It's really, really critical. So this summer, I thought I was been thinking about this podcast for quite some time. And we were on our family vacation with our six kids. And I was able to interview each of uh, my six kids about their experience and their take, pros and cons, good and bad, about technology and social media. And the older ones who, you know, didn't grow up with cell phones and iPads and things like that, the, you know, the 21-ish through 29-year-olds, they really felt like the technology has been a, a really useful tool for them. Like a carpenter uses a hammer or tools that an electrician might use. It's part of their trade. It's part of their education. It's, it's in, embedded in the fabric of who they are and how they function in this world and, and deeply ingrained in that. But at the same time, they all were quick to say that technology has its downsides. Uh, you can get addicted to it. It can be something that you can go out to dinner and be sitting there, everybody looking at their phones and not interacting or communicating at all. It can, uh, it can, it can uh, curtail activity. So a lot of my kids would tell me that they would spend a lot of time making specific time to get out and go hiking, to get out in the world, to exercise. They, they really made an effort to turn off the computer and turn off the cell phone and they understand that. I, and I think that in that generation, sort of the, the mid-20s and up, there's, uh, um, 
they, they've learned the ropes. So maybe the social media thing hit as they were a little bit more mature, and they have a, seem to have a, a little bit more of a handle on it than some of the younger kids. That said, we're going to dive into some of the research, and that's not true across the board by any means, so we're going to dive into that in a minute. But I was also fascinated by my younger kids, my 17-year-old and my 14-year-old. My 17-year-old now is a junior in high school, um, and he is, of all of our six kids, the most social kid. He has tons of friends. And he said that he uses it primarily as a social tool. And I want to dive in in a minute as to how some of these apps and some of these social media apps actually function to hook kids into having to stay on it and engage in it and open the app again and again and again. It's called, uh, it's called the, 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 uh, the, the daily use, which means how often the app is open ranks the app to a higher level on the app store page so they sell more apps and they become you know, a more successful financial company selling apps to kids who open their app more frequently. So a lot of these social media apps have hooks in them to get the kids to do it again and again and again. And there's no doubt that that happens, and I'll talk more about that. But he really loved it from the perspective of connecting. He's been to going to camp in the summers for years. He has friends from all over the country. This uh, summer, he went to an international camp for art uh, and design, which is his thing. And uh, he has now friends from all over the world. Uh, they're planning a, a, um, a trip to Kenya to do some volunteer work there this winter all from these kids from all over the world. None of that would be possible in his mind without social media having a cell phone. So he sees it as an incredible tool to stay connected with people for a very, very long period of time. It's sort of interesting because, you know, when computers and technology first came, everybody was like, everybody's isolated and they're in front of their computer and they're not interacting. Well, they are interacting and maybe being overstimulated in their interaction. They're definitely not alone. Kids today are not alone. They're interacting uh, in a massive way. However, they're not interacting the way we have maybe been, uh, we have been designed in an evolutionary sense. And um, so, and my son also, 17 year old, also saw the downsides. He saw how technology can be a crutch how kids can use it in social situations to, it's a lot easier to look at your phone and act like you're busy than maybe interact or, or break the ice with somebody or be social, which is sometimes awkward, particularly for teenagers. It's learning how to do that. And that learning how to be social activates frontal lobe behavior, language skills, to, you know, child development, cognitive function. So many studies are there for us to sort of be forced into some of those social interactive situations. Um, so, so he definitely sees how that can be a downside. And of course, you know, a, a lot of the kids, he said, they don't have a lot of limits in his school where kids, you know, aren't, you know, don't use the technology. Um, the internet for them, there's not a lot of parental controls. Some have, some don't. But it isn't across the board that all parents have parental control on their kids' cell phones, which is a little bit surprising for me to hear that. And a lot of kids don't have restrictions, but a lot of kids do in terms of time and limits, how much they can use it. So, um, so he definitely saw that it can be overwhelming, and it's true. You know, when I asked him, do you think that your cell phone has impacted your grades? And he said, probably. Well, studies show that that kids who use cell phones more than four hours a day actually have a whole grade point, a whole grade level below a decrease in their GPA. So if you are getting an A, you get a B. If you're getting a B, you get a C. Just by using uh, your screen time more than four hours per day, which is sort of interesting because one study showed that um, kids use screens seven hours, and in a more recent study. Uh, showed that kids are using their cell phones or being on a screen time checking their mail, the weather, texting, nine hours and 22 minutes on average, which is a crazy, crazy number. So it's definitely something, and my son said, it, absolutely something we all have to get a handle on and learn how to navigate school and to navigate their work and to dig in and not let it be a crutch and not let it be a distraction. At Stanford, they did a study and they found that kids who use more or online and more social media are more, in Stanford, these kids, very brilliant kids, 
were significantly more distracted. So the more the use, the more distractions they had to overcome. So it's a very, very real thing. And then I think the most fascinating part of this discussion is, is um, I asked my, my, my daughter, who's 14, who just graduated from middle school. She, now she's getting ready to go into her first year in high school. It's scary. And there's no question that middle school has become, you know, the, the land of smartphones on steroids. It's just, it's, it's absolutely over the top. And um, in, in something that the middle school that my daughter went to, they were not able to police this use uh, whatsoever. So I asked her about it, and, and um, she said that, um, and I asked her if she would uh, be willing to write a blog about her experience, because she went to Africa this summer with her older daughter, who is, works for a foundation called Mabaza, who connects elementary schools in Uganda with elementary schools here in Colorado, and they do pen pal letters and support each other, and it's a beautiful foundation. So she goes there every summer, and this year she took my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, with her. On the way to the airport, my 14-year-old daughter forgot her cell phone, and she was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And there's her story, and she wrote about it. It's on today's blog. It's called My 14-Year-Old's uh, Experience with Social Media. It's my 14-year-old's blog on social media. Um, really tells you know, her whole experience, which I think is just fascinating and, and deeply compelling and heartfelt. And what the bottom line for her, and I think it really tells the whole story in a nutshell and in just her simple words, is that and what we lack and what the studies and science show is what we lack when we are on phones communicating with, with having streaks of communication with 10, 20, 30 kids a day uh, throughout the day, 100, 150 texts per day, things like that. There's no direct communication. There's no heart-to-heart -heart communication. There's no real connection that can be made. When my daughter went to Africa, she was like, wow, I was connecting with these kids heart-to-heart. -heart. They were having fun. They were creating games with no cell phones, tablets, computers, technology whatsoever. We had the best time. We connected at a, such a deep level, at a level that she really didn't find in all of her years in middle school. She found in Africa just for being there for a month, connecting with these kids. And, and she said it's, it's interesting because the only way you can really connect, she discovered, was heart to heart and direct. And she says at school, it's very difficult because I'm having a conversation with a kid and all of a sudden their phone buzzes and they're all of a sudden looking at their phone and they're not even listening to me. And, the, and now we're having this conversation where they're like texting and talking at the same time. It can't get deep. It can't get, um, you know, at a deep level. And the studies show that communication, direct back and forth communication, is enhances the ability for us to learn languages, develops cognitive skills, helps us interact socially, feel confident about ourselves because we're getting feedback. That's how the brain works. It reads faces, interprets faces, facial expressions, all that isn't really there. And the studies also show that when kids are posting things on Snapchat or online, what they're really doing is they're just they're taking the picture of them doing the coolest thing or looking their best with a filter or something to make them look wonderful. And they literally are always trying to be perfect. And my daughter used those words in her blog, like everybody's perfect. And you feel this, this need to be perfect or be doing something exciting all the time. And she realized that that's not how it is. And, and unless you're constantly texting or you're constantly posting something cool, you always feel like you, 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 this urgent need to do that, to fit in, to be accepted, or even to be happy. And, and the way these apps are created, as we'll see here as we dig in, it really taps into the addictive nature of children's developing brains. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I felt in my own life, I've come across it. I think Gigi's blog is, is nothing short of heartfelt. Every time I read it, I, I, I can't finish it. Um, it's just beautiful. So I invite you to, to read that. And then this Thursday, we have another blog coming out with, uh, or a newsletter with a video coming out with all the research that I'm going to share with you um, now. So, um, so here we go. Let's dig into some of, uh, some of the research that's there. According to the New York Times, uh, the average teenager and adult texts or uses their smartphone about 150 times per day. That's about every six minutes, and that's about 110 texts per day. Um, 
Texting, however, for most teenagers is pretty passe. It's pretty old school. Most kids don't text unless they're texting with their parents. That's about all they, only people they text with. They interact mostly with things like Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. And for younger kids, clearly it's Snapchat. That's the one that they're using. So these numbers are probably very, very low because they don't include what's going on uh, with, uh, with Snapchat. 46% of cell phone users uh, say that they couldn't live without their smartphone. And one in three say they would rather give up sex. I don't know uh, if this study, this uh, was with adults or teenagers, I'm, I'm not sure, but that should be in the blog. Um, then give up their cell phone. I mean, that's just crazy. And, and you know, the problem is, is that the cell phones are here to say technology isn't going anywhere. There's no doubt about that. So we have to figure out a way to, to understand it, to bring balance to it. And, um, and cell phone addiction is a real, real thing. And a big study, University of Maryland, as part of their un, uh, Unplug the World project, research evaluated kids, students from 10 different cultures, uh, countries rather, and they found that when they took their kids' phone away for just 24 hours, they experienced major and severe distress. Now, in our house, I'll get into my, how we do it. We have a, what's called a 24-hour rule where kids break our rules. There's no emotion. There's no yelling. There's no argument. We just take their phone away for 24 hours because we have rules. They break the rules. They get their phone taken away. It's sort of like, you know, simple, easy. We don't have to get into the whole drama of the whole thing. It's just a done deal. So which the studies show that give them some good time to just, you know, distress, which I think is a good thing for the kids, very good thing for kids to go through distress and learn what it's like to actually go through that. I think it's very important. In another big, large-scale study of 2,500 college kids, 60% of the kids admitted being addicted to their cell phones. With 83% of Americans with a cell phone, we have to deal with this. A little bit more of the research I think was phenomenal, some stats here. 92% of teens go on the line daily. 24% say they're on almost constantly. 76% of teens use social media. 81 older, 81% of older teens and 68% of teens between 13 and 14. 71% of teens use Facebook. 52% use Instagram, 41% use Snapchat, and 33% use Twitter. Here's an interesting stat. 77% of parents say their, teens, say their teens get distracted by their devices and don't pay attention when they're together. The, parent, the parent's role in this is, is, is really, really important. Um, and I want to talk about that in just a minute. 59% of parents say they feel their teen is addicted to their mobile device. 50 percent of teens say they're addicted to their device as well. A lot of these studies vary depending on who's doing them, but the numbers are staggering, okay? Now, in one study with 2,000 parents, let's talk about parents for a second, have kids between 8 and 18 years old. People with children spend, on average, 9 hours and 22 minutes per day in front of the teens either texting or Googling or Snapchatting or watching YouTube. And despite of that, 78% of parents told researchers that they are modeling good behavior for their kids, and they don't think that there's really any major issues. Now, with 92% of teens going on, on daily and nearly three-quarters of children between zero and eight years old using apps, this is a real major issue. And in one study, here's what the parents take look like. And I thought this is something, a lot of the research is showing that parents have to model good behavior. Parents are not interacting with their kids. They're not taking time to be with their kids. They're online. They're on the computer. They're checking the media. They're checking the, the news feed. They're doing Snapchatting or, or, or texting and, and constantly distracting on the computer, on the phone. Then we want them to stop. It doesn't really work that way. So a lot of parents have to take the responsibility. And in one study, they found that... Um, in terms of emotional well-being, 18% um, of parents said that, the, so that the, their cell phone technology helps them. 20% said it hurts. And 62% it had no difference to their emotional well-being. In another study with relationship with friends, 44% said it helps. 15% said it hurts. 41% said it had no difference. School performance, 23% said it helps. 22% said it hurts. 
and 55% said no difference. The trend is here that most of the parents are thinking, the majority of parents think that none of the cell phone use has any difference in any of it. Physical activity, 77% say it helps, 50% say it hurts, and 43% say no difference. And we know, all of us know that when kids get on their phones, they can stay in there all day long and not go outside and do anything. So most of us, any of us have kids, know that it hurts their, you know, their, their uh, physical activity. But for 43% to say no difference, I don't know how, how that could be. Face-to-face communication, 9% say it helps. 34% say it helps, but 58% say it makes no difference. Again, no difference. Ability to focus, 9% say it helps. 35% say it hurts. And 56% say no difference. Behavior, the child's behavior, 10% helps. 24% say it hurts. And again, 66% say no difference. So here we have some interesting things, and I think that the parents, all of us parents, have to take responsibility as well. Not just telling your kids what to do, but modeling the behavior that we want them to do. And I will talk about some tips at the end here, things that I use in my, my family, and some of the, the, the most highly recommended tips that, that, and guides and, and ways to get you know, uh, supported in how to create a, media, a, a family plan for media. Um, and I'll give you that here towards the end. But one other interesting thing that I think is fascinating is apps are designed, geared to become addictive, as I mentioned. But, and it's not really isolating kids. I think it's overstimulating kids is really the issue. You know, in Gigi's blog, she made it so clear that, you know, you can't connect deep heart to heart with a Snapchat or with a Twitter, with a Instagram. It's all surface. Everybody's on their best behavior, perfect. So it's not real. It's not real life. And when you're going from 140 characters to pictures and videos, it's just quick, 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 quick sound bites. And there's no meaningful discussions. Um, and so apps use this thing called daily active users. And, they, and, and the apps are ranked by how many times kids turn on their apps. Games are, 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 are ranked in the app store. It's all about money, right? They're, they're ranked by how many times the kids use the game or turn the game on and off. So a lot of games will say, you know, at, the, at a certain point in the game, they'll say, you will get extra bonus points if you log on in an hour exactly at 5 o'clock p.m. and log on. And they have to then kids time, put a set of timer to go back and log on at 5 o'clock to get these extra free bonus points. So the games are, are inserting things to force the kids, motivate the kids, addict the kids, entice the kids to go back and, get, and log on and log on and log on again and again and again which is really interesting. And, and uh, you know, uh, Facebook stats are generally uh, used by uh, the average age is 24, 25 to 34 and about 1.3 billion users per day, which is pretty massive. Instagram is for 18 to 29 year olds, and that's 2 million users per day. Snapchat, which is really for the kids and the one I want to talk about, the ages under 25, and the mass, the largest proportion of them are, are, are under 18, actually. And they have 166 million users per day. Interesting thing is when another study where they did uh, uh, evaluating teen use, and the average age was a 16-year-old kid, um, YouTube, uh, in this study, outpaced cable T for the first time ever. Netflix, which kids have on their phone and on their iPads, uh, beat out both, which I thought was sort of really interesting. Uh, and Snapchat was the number one most important social media network. Instagram was too. Now, Snapchat is um, highly gamified, highly addictive. When you Snapchat has what are called streaks, and kids get little emojis if they're on a streak. And if you're on a streak of 10 days or 20 days or 250 days, the last thing you want to you want to do is break the streak, which means you don't text or Snapchat somebody within a 24-hour period. And if you if you uh, and if you reach the four-hour limit and the clock starts ticking, you get a little hourglass and these little emojis start popping up to get you to urgently begin to text. So, and, and if you have a streak with someone for a long period of time and you feel this motivation and you don't do it, you're going to hurt their feelings, which the kids don't really want to do. So a lot of kids are spending a lot of time doing stupid texting that means nothing just to keep the streak alive. 
And when their phone goes off, they have to sort of answer it and go back to it and keep the streak going. It's sort of extremely very addicting. And it's really hooked into the kids' connection with their friends. They want to hurt their friends. They want to keep their friends. And it really draws on the addictive behavior of kids directly. Depression is one of the things that is very, very real. Some big studies on Facebook have found that about 62% of Facebook users, this is a study about 1,500 people who use Facebook and Twitter, that 62% of them were, had feelings of inadequacy and 60% had feelings of jealousy. And the interesting thing is that, that uh, in another study, the University of Missouri, they found that, that when you use Facebook, a lot of kids are using Facebook to... to uh, evaluate the success of other people to see if they're doing really, really well, then it makes us feel inadequate and, and envious and jealous. And when we have that kind of approach to Facebook or social media, and you're seeing everybody else doing these wonderful things and you're looking at my life, which isn't so wonderful, then it can source de uh, depression and it can make them jealous or envious. Now, on the other side of the coin, if you go just to connect with old friends, which a lot of people do who are maybe a little bit older, it's a positive experience and can be very positive to stay connected. But when you're talking about younger kids, when they're actually putting perfection on the screen, looking for things to do that other kids will like, taking riskier, doing riskier things, jumping off of bigger things, and doing riskier flips and things like that to get them to be videos so they can be they can Snapchat that or Instagram that. These are things that are all about reward chemistry. And when you are addicted to the reward chemistry, this becomes a real problem. And and um, so if we can stick to just connecting and communicating, it's great. But I think that's a level of maturity that most middle schoolers and high schoolers just don't have. When you're, you're beginning to you know, move into the world of, of developing your own identity, which happens in middle school and high school, you reflect a lot off of other people. We definitely want other people to like us. We want other people to approve of us. And we then engage in behavior to make them like us to make them approve of us. And I, I tell my kids this a lot, and I think I will keep telling them this until they get it, but everybody is trying to be liked. Everybody wants to feel safe and secure. Everybody wants to wear the best clothes, look their best, be the coolest, be the most social, so people like them. And it, but the reality is, is that having other people like you never fills you up just exactly what's demonstrated when you're being liked on Facebook or you're getting a streak or you have lots of followers on your Twitter, you never feel satisfied. And this is what Gigi said so insightfully in her blog. She never felt satisfied. She keep posting and posting, but it never filled her up. It was supposed to make her happy, but it didn't make her happy. How did I keep doing more? And I said, because you can never be happy from someone liking you. The, the, the nature of this is sort of a, a little bit of a trick. We are hardwired as young children to want mom and dad to like us, right? We, we, if we wandered into the, in, you know, wandered into the jungle as young children uh, and mom and dad didn't care for us, we would get eaten by lions and there'd be no kids here at all. We wouldn't be here as a species. So we have a hard wire to want people, mom, dad, to like us and approve of us. And so we, we cry and we laugh and we make jokes and we're reading the facial expressions of your parents at a very, very young age. That develops frontal lobes and activates brain and language. That's what develops language is kids listening and looking at mom and dad's face and creating reactions to that. We're wired for that. When that's not there, we don't develop as quickly or as well. So when kids are, are engaging in, in social media, they lose that connection. So we, we, we then spend a lot of our time trying to get other people to like us. And we don't feel comfortable letting the very delicate petals of our true flower open and let the truth of us out. We put some armor on and then we engage in behavior that we think they're going to like. We buy the clothes that we think they're going to like. And we try to present an image on the screen that everybody will like. And then we realize that it's not working. I'm not getting happy. So we keep doing more and more and more. And social media has taken 
a hold of us. Now, I don't mean to badger social media. I think, like I said, there's some positive aspects, but we have to understand the psychology that's taking place in these kids at a very, very young age. In, old, in the old days, kids would have what are called rites of passage. You know, a leopard, for example, one day mom says, okay, I'm going south, you're going north, you're on your own. If I see you again, it'll be like, how you doing? But it's not like I'm watching over you. If you get eaten by another lion or leopard, it's on you. You're free. You're doing you. I'm not, you can't look for me to approve of you and watch over you any longer. And these are called rites of passage. And they're not really in our culture any longer. But there's when young men and women take a step towards being adults, where they stop needing love, and they start being love, being able to love another, a partner, in a full, complete way, to love their children, perhaps, down the road, in a full and complete way. And studies show that when kids love fully, or parents or adults love fully, it changes the chemistry at an epigenetic level. So when you're engaged in behavior uh, with a little bit of hope that you like me, so I say something, you know, if I give you a present and I want you to like it, well, therefore like me, give me the approval, give me the like, it's called hedonistic giving according to this one study, which might give you this, but I got a little bit of a hook and I'm hoping that you like it. Do you like it? Do you like it? Does it fit? Is it the right color? I'm waiting for the approval for me because I gave you this beautiful thing. It's called hedonistic giving. And then there's this thing called eudaimonic giving, which is when you give completely freely. I don't care if you like it or not. I love you, honey, but it's no concern of yours. I don't need anything in return because I'm, I'm, I'm giving this to you is filling me up in such a beautiful way. I don't need anything more. That kind of giving changes the genetic code. It epigenetically has an effect. It penetrates deeply. So when you're giving yourself fully, the person on the other end feels it. Different than when you're giving it with a hook to want approval. And when you give fully, that opens the door for them to feel safe. Safe enough to open the delicate petals of their flower and let the truth of them out. Then all of a sudden, by you taking a risk, your children taking risks to be themselves and rip off the armor and take that risk to be themselves and act on themselves, give the love that they have and and show that they care for another student or another friend and express it deeply. That's direct heart-to-heart communication. And it connects at a deep level. And then all of a sudden, they feel safe and they open up their hearts. And now we have a heart-to-heart communication and a real connection. And that is very difficult when you're posting 140 characters. It's very difficult when you're posting a, a, you know, a 15-second video on Instagram or the latest thing on Facebook or a quick Snapchat, which, which basically stays on the screen for about a second. Um, so, so this is what I try to teach my kids is how can they find themselves? And I think that, that what we spent a lot of time, my wife and I, helping the kids do at a young age, all six of them, is I felt like our job was to help them find what they love, help them find what they're passionate about, and then guide them and give them exposure to things that they might be passionate about, or maybe not. I mean, my oldest son, uh, you know, he wasn't passionate about anything in high school except outdoor leadership. And we'd come home, you know, uh, uh, after a night out or on the weekend or something. We really took a night out, my wife and I, but we'd come home on the weekends and the whole house would smell like smoke. And people would say, whoa, what's going on? Is your house on fire? And say, no, that's my son. He's, he's making fires with a stick, rubbing sticks together, and he's trying to make a hundred fires. And he does it with a little, little wood on a wool uh, blanket that he has and that was his thing making fires in our house and and he was all about outdoor leadership and now he's in grad school for political science so I mean you never know but just giving them that thing that is theirs doesn't mean it's going to be the thing that's going to be theirs for the rest of their life but I feel like that's a big part of who we are as parents is to provide that for them and to listen carefully and not put every kid through the same mold soccer or whether whatever it might be and and there's so much pressure for parents to put these kids through all this stuff that i think that um i think that's uh, a challenge and i think if the kid doesn't have an identity then they're going to try to find that identity from outside and if they're doing that through their through their friends who have no identity either but and and they're just pumping on the screen they think everybody else will like and the kids buy into that then you slowly lose 
that heart-to-heart to connection with your kids. And I think that's a dangerous road to hoe. And I don't think that just taking your cell phones away or having your kids live in a bubble is really the reality. I mean, we live in a technological society. It's real. It's not going to go anywhere. But I think understanding the psychology and really, you know, being there for your kids, communicating with your kids, talking to them, understanding them, listening to them, so they feel safe. Remember, the fundamental piece of this puzzle happened when kids didn't feel safe. They didn't want to get eaten by a lion or a tiger, so they created some some behavioral pattern um, to get approval from mom and dad to feel safe. They're still pumping on the screen the same chemistry to feel safe. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the first six years of life is when we experience impressions that make up 95, according to the science, 95% of the behaviors and the belief systems and the things we think think and say and do as adults. 95% of the stuff you did all day long today is impressions that drove that thinking came from the first six years of life. These are the critical times that's called in science. And this is where cell phone use and social media use and screen time is really, really important to, to monitor that. So we have to be aware of that. Little babies, when they, when they swipe at a book and they look at something and they're looking, they, they think everything's like, well, that book is real. And they touch it and it's not real, but they're completely thinking it's real because that's all they know. When they touch a, a, an iPad, it is real. It turns blue and green and it swipes and it talks and it speaks and it's interacting. And all this information that's coming is like, hit that button, boom, it talks. Hit that button, it changes color. Activates dopamine. Dopamine is the reward chemistry, the reward center. Something that um, historically would took a long time to develop. You know, you put a seed in the ground and you water it for two or three weeks and the plant comes out and then you get a plant. And then you have to wait all summer for the tomato. This is not instant gratification by any means. This is a long process of getting, whoa, and now you have a tomato. Then you take it inside and you cook it and you eat it. You know, and it's something that is quite beautiful. And it is a reward, but it took a long time in the making. There's no, no experience that we've experienced in an evolutionary sense that is so instant as cell phones and allows us then, therefore, to be passive learners doesn't engage us to be patient, to allow the, the, the neural pathways to develop in ways that activate the, the language centers, the cognitive skills, the, the frontal lobes, which have to do with reason, which is really important for teenagers, to develop those, and more importantly, the social skills, to feel the confidence to actually be social and reach out. Because a lot of kids use their cell phones as crutches. They, 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 they retreat because they don't have uh, the social skills that they that they really need. Very interesting stuff, I, I think. So let's you know. Um, so the, the the fundamental piece of this puzzle is the reward chemistry, and we have to deal with that. But there are other aspects of that. You know, studies show that when you take away their cell phone, that kids get so addicted they experience the same signs and symptoms if they were actually having withdrawals from alcohol, drugs, or nicotine. So it's a real thing that kids are addicted to that, to that reward chemistry, which is, you know, very, very important. Um, um, so let's talk about some of the other issues that are there. Sleep, for example. Uh, a lot of kids, which is not good, uh, sleep with their cell phone next to their head, and it buzzes all night long. And into the wee hours of the morning, kids are answering texts and texting with each other. This is a really, really bad idea. It delays sleep. We have my daughter, Gigi, we always say that if we could harvest her melatonin, we would be rich because she could sleep all day, all night. For when she went to Africa, I think they said she slept for two days straight. Didn't wake up once. She is a melatonin oasis, which means that the melatonin helps put you to sleep. But if you're up with your screen, the blue light on a cell phone, an iPad, a computer screen, is the exact light that blocks the production of melatonin. And if you don't have melatonin, you don't go to sleep. Now, melatonin's job is not to put you to sleep. Melatonin's job is to put you to sleep so it can then do its job. I did an amazing podcast with Dr. Paula Witt, who is a a melatonin researcher. You should watch that and understand the importance of our connection to the light-dark cycles. 
and how blue light from cell phones or any light at nighttime for that matter is going to interrupt the circadian clock, which is our link to the cycles of nature, which are linked to obesity, to depression, to osteoporosis, to cancers, to mood issues, to immunity. The research is powerful. Studies show that getting our, ourselves reconnected to the rhythms of nature, when the sun goes down, we go to sleep, when it wakes up, we get up, is going to revolutionize medicine as we know it. Because everybody on the streets is generally out of whack in a circadian way. And that impacts over 12 different hormones which are spinning out of control because we're up at 11 or 12 o'clock at night and the sun went, at set, sun went down at 6 o'clock at night. So, you know, one of the things we do in our house, which I highly suggest, is no cell phones in their room, when they, no plugging in cell phones or charging them in their room. We actually have a master switch. We switch off all the Wi-Fi in our house at night, so it's dead, no Wi-Fi. Um, the phones are plugged in in another room, and they're not next to their bed, and they're not looking at screens you know, at night. And then if you do have a screen, there are orange uh, blue light filters you can put on so it doesn't suppress the melatonin production and delay the production. Now, the other side of that coin in the light-dark cycle world, it's light and dark. We need full-time darkness and we need full-time sun. The lux, which is the intensity of light inside your house or your office, is probably around 300 lux. You walk outside on a sunny day, it's five to 7,000 lux. The amount of lux you need to suppress melatonin during the daytime is about in the thousands. At night, so, and so the more you have light during the day, the studies show, the more melatonin you produce at night, the more deeply you sleep the more detoxifying you, detoxified you are. The melatonin is like the, the janitor that washes floors and windows. It happens at night. And if you don't have that full dose of melatonin to support the, 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 uh, the balance of over 12 different hormones at night, it's very, very important that these kids get deep, deep sleep. And I've written tons of articles on melatonin, but one little piece of that puzzle is that historically, uh, humans and mammals were generally seasonal breeders before a lot of evolution took place. And in the end of summer, when the sunlight was higher, we would breed and then have babies in the spring. And that's sort of true with most mammals. So when the sunlight is, when you have extra light during the day, you suppress melatonin levels, but you increase sex hormones. So one of the things that happens with kids when they're developing their sex hormones, which is, you know, you know, sort of overwhelming for them in the first place, and then they're up really, really late, and they have free reign on the internet to sexual sites and things like that, it's very, very difficult for them to resist that because you've got you know, the hormones acting in, in teenagers anyway, you have the suppression of melatonin, which amps up sex hormone activity, and now you have these kids looking at sites or, or encouraged to look at sites or, or even chemically encouraged or hormonally encouraged to look at sites and be places where they shouldn't be on the internet. So again, getting in the bed early, turning off those lights, cell phones not there, no blue light, very, 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 very important. Because sleep is a critical piece in, of, of our long-term health puzzle. Violence, the studies on violence have clear. They did big meta-analysis and they showed that violent video games are linked to violent behavior. And they found also that if you change the, 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 uh, the violent video games to positive and educational, it literally changes the behavior, particularly in boys, which is powerful. So it's very, very important. And the other piece of that puzzle was positive parenting. You know, parenting, uh, being, being there, uh, along with less negative uh, and inappropriate or violent content, changes the behavior of our kids, which is very important. Obesity, yes, social media and screen time is linked to obesity. For every hour that a kid is on a screen, they eat generally an extra 167 calories. In one study produced, published, uh, or recently put out by the LA Times, showed that kids in kindergarten, um, uh, over one hour of day of screen time, for every hour of day uh, extra of screen time, it increases the risk of obesity by 72%. So the studies of screen time use, excessive screen time use, 
and obesity is fairly, fairly large. So be really careful. You know, most experts are suggesting one hour a day for children between the ages of two and five on screens. And nothing except with maybe, you know, uh, watching a movie with your kids or something like being with a parent when they're under two years old. But generally nothing is, you know, nothing is, uh, is what the, the rules particularly say. So in our house, we do a handful of things, and I like to read to you some of the things that we do in our house. Um, when kids come home from school, um, they have some time to have a snack and eat. Uh, you know, generally, um, they're not just wanting a snack, and my wife and I usually have a big lunch uh, as part of our main meal. So they'll come home and they'll actually eat the leftovers or whatever's on the stove. So they'll generally have a pretty good-sized meal at around 3 o'clock when they come home. And they have some free time for some cell phone activity, and then they get ready to go do their homework. Um, uh, once the homework starts, cell phones are in a different room. No cell phones while they're doing homework. Uh, we do make some exceptions to that, um, but generally speaking, that's the golden rule. Uh, when they finish the homework, if it's, if, 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 if uh, before bed, if they have time, they can have a little bit more cell phone activity to check their, to be with their friends. But generally, during that time, no cell phone activity during homework time, and they get it all done. And then uh, cell phones are plugged in, charged elsewhere, not in their room. During the school week, no TV whatsoever. Um, uh, phones and tablets, like I said, are plugged in elsewhere. Uh, we turn off the Wi-Fi. The kids get iPads for middle school and high school. It's part of their programming, so we make sure there's parental controls on all of that so they have no access to that. And if they break any of those rules, the 24-hour rule, like I said, is that we just take it away. There's no argument. There's no discussion. They know clearly this is a 24-hour rule, and it's very, very important. So a um, couple of, of uh, interesting um, uh, places to go to help develop or get more information about some uh, media plans for your family uh, one website that I like is called healthychildren.org slash media use plan. Another one is called Common Sense Media, great website for information. Another one is put out by the National PTA called The Smart Talk, and those are all places you can go to get more information about a family plan. Some of the most common ones are treat media as you would any other environment for your kids. You set limits. Make sure they know who they're engaged in. Uh, you know, play time limits, make sure there's unplugged times and there's times when they can and times when they can't. Um, for example, there's, you know, obviously during meals, no screen time. During in the car rides, we have tried to have communication, not screen time. So we do our, the best we can to have no meals. A lot of times we go into a restaurant, everybody puts their cell phone on the table in the middle of the table so they can't use their phone at all. We all interact and have a conversation. Sometimes you have to be creative to make, to make that happen. Um, Playing with your kids. I say kids, families who play together, bond together, learn together. So, you know, play a video game with your kids. Learn what they're doing. Um, you know, play outside with them. Be with them. You know, take a minute. If kids, parents think, oh, good, my kid's playing in the backyard. I can now go do what I need to do. That may be the most important time to be with your kid is to play with them. We used to have, when my kids were younger, mandatory soccer games, mandatory softball games, mandatory trampoline crazy experiences in our house. So after school, when I'd come home, they were home. It was mandatory. We all got outside and played, got fresh air, and played hard with all the kids. It was just a ton of, ton of fun. Being a good role model, making sure that you're not an accessory user of cell phone technology, which is very, very important. Um, know the value, like we talked about, of face-to-face -face communication. It's a big thing that all the research points to. We have to learn to communicate. So kids learn to communicate with their friends, and then they feel more confident with adults, and then you have kids that can interact, and that develops language skills uh, and cognitive function, which is very, very important. The general rule of thumb out there today is zero hours per day for kids between zero and two. Uh, between kids between two and five, one hour a day of screen time, and in between five and 18, just two hours a day max. That's pretty much the general rule uh, of thumb for kids. And then, um, then, like I said earlier, so many kids are using apps of all kinds. And there are many, many apps that are, that are good or bad or ugly, educational. You don't really, really know. But commonsensemedia.com 
how it ranks more than 80,000 apps and you can go look and find the apps that are actually really, really good. So there's a ton of apps out there and that's a good place to go to see if you can't, um, if you can't, um, uh, you know, find out and make sure that app is actually educational, like it says it is educational and it doesn't have any hooks in there to keep your kids, you know, hooked on social media. So the bottom line in my experience with social media is that um, our older kids, I think, got through it. But our younger kids, middle schoolers, it's crazy. And we definitely need to have some controls on it. And when you have babies who are now on their screens because it's an easy distraction for them, keeps the kids active. This is where us parents have to realize that our job as parents is not to not to entertain or distract the kids or get them in a corner by their quiet, but to interact. And sometimes that's the hardest things for parents because you got a million and one things to do. But if you can remember that one thing is get down on your knees, play with those kids. That's what they want. They want that interaction. It's more important than anything. And you think I'm just playing, doing nothing, got a million things to do. That is the key. And you only have a couple of years to do it. The first two years of life are critical, then three, then six. Those are the stages of development. So the first six years make all the, make all the impressions for an adult, but the first two are like massive. Then the next year is important than the next two. So, the, so those first six years of life blast. If you have children, you know, they go by so fast. So if any way you can possibly put, make the house a little dirty or not get everything all cleaned up, make it all perfect, but be there for your kids, I think that's really the, the takeaway is to, uh, and, and it's hard, I get it. So all of us, you know, could do better. I know I could do better. Constantly working on doing better, you know, putting things down and getting out there and be with my kids, even as, even now, constantly realizing, because there's so many things that pull our attention. But the more you can do that, I think we win the war against this crazy experiment that nobody knows what the outcome will be. No doubt kids are gonna know about technology. They're going to be the future computer programmers and we're gonna take the technological world to a whole other level. And we will probably evolve to handle that in some way, shape or form. But that doesn't mean there's, gonna be, there's not gonna be any casualties along the way as we kind of uh, move forward in this technological age. So now it's all about balancing. Like my said said, maximize the positive, minimize the negative. That was his takeaway, dad. Maximize the positive, minimize the, you know, minimize the negative, and you'll be okay. Find the balance. But kids sometimes need help and limits and structure around their cell phone social media use to find that balance. They rarely can find it on their own because we're talking about a massive addiction to the tune of cigarettes, drugs, and alcohol. Thanks for listening. Please uh, stay tuned for the blog. The newsletter is coming out this Thursday, which gives you the references for all this research that I cited tonight. And don't miss Gigi's blog, where she tells her story about her social media experience in middle school. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Duyard.